I want to focus on today are three other uh, called challenges or crises or areas of challenge. And that relates to policy, uh, to institutions, and to political courage. I think those are where the real, where the challenges lie. And if you take care of these situations, the numbers will not look like a crisis anymore. They'll look like a manageable flow of human beings in need of humanitarian care. So let me first start about policy, and I'll break this down into three categories. I'll try to do this uh, uh, quickly as well. The first is on, uh, on emergencies. Um, the, the, the international refugee regime uh, is built on a couple of uh, important uh, building blocks. First of all, for those of you in Professor Martin's class or reading the newspapers, you probably have, uh, know the phrase, no refoulement, the idea that refugees should not be returned to a place where they'll be persecuted. That is the underlying norm of the refugee system, not to send people uh, back, uh, back to persecution. Um, secondly, the convention itself establishes a lot of rights. It's a human rights document that is a convention on the status of refugees. And so refugees, when they enter the country, are supposed to get rights. They're supposed to get the right to work, the right to start businesses, the right to uh, be protected by social legislation and labor laws, uh, the right to practice religion, uh, and the like. So the system understands people coming in, being protected, getting rights, and then, importantly, solutions. People are supposed to go home at some point. What I'll say in a moment, uh, a little bit later, is that the, the, one of the most serious problems of the current regime is that people don't stop being refugees. They don't go home. They're not locally integrated. They're not resettled elsewhere. And this whole system is kept together only if there's adequate, what's known in the business as burden sharing among all the nations of the world. Or the phrase that's now being preferred is responsibility sharing. It can't be that just the countries neighboring a country in conflict are responsible for dealing, um, uh, dealing, with the, dealing with the situation. It must be more widely spread. And so the first major challenge is really how to develop a much more robust system of responsibility. Right now, we have a system that's described by uh, Peter Sutherland, who is the um, uh, attorney, uh, Secretary General, Special Representative for Migration and Development, he calls, me a, calls it responsibility by proximity, meaning that it's the country's neighbor. It's the country's neighbor in Syria, for example, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Iraq, and Turkey, who have who borne most of the responsibility of taking care of the Syrian uh, refugees. That needs to be spread worldwide, or otherwise you will see countries begin to close their borders. It's the way the system works is countries don't know if they're next to a country that's about to be a refugee-creating country. And the way you get people to participate in the system overall is if there's almost an insurance policy, that you know that if you take people in, you'll be benefited. Now, the way that works generally in the system is that the developed states give money to the developing countries who take care of refugees because 80% of the world's refugees are in developing countries. But the serious situation shows that that's not an adequate situation. You actually need to have other places for refugees to go, and you need a much, much more robust program for helping hosting states, and I'll say more about that uh, in a moment. So in the emergency situation, there needs to be much more uh, dramatic uh, responsibility sharing than has currently uh, gone on. Um, you know this from the EU uh, situation. There was an attempt just to distribute 160,000 asylum seekers inside the EU, and that has failed. That hasn't worked. Hungary said no. Other countries said we'll take a few. But even within the EU institutions itself, they have not been able to uh, 
pull together the kind of responsibility and sharing that's necessary. So this is the problem that happens regionally, locally, and globally. And I can talk a bit more about maybe the questions and answers about what a, a system might look like and how we might be able to get there. But that is a real crisis, because unless you have responsibility sharing, you will see people closing their borders. And that's what we've seen uh, in Syria. I mean, eventually, Jordan and Turkey and Lebanon basically said no more refugees because they were absorbing them all, and the rest of the world really was not was not helping out. And by the way, this is not something that can, you know, right now the, the U.S. is kind of sitting back, waiting to see if the EU and Turkey can figure stuff out on on how refugees will be handled in the region. But that's not appropriate either. It's not just for the EU and Turkey to figure out how to how to handle the, the flow out of uh, out of. Um, out of Syria, that should be again globally shared. And again, I'll, I'll say a few more words about that towards the end of this uh, conversation. So that's on how we should be dealing with emergencies better through a more robust uh, system of, of responsibility sharing. Secondly, the other uh, another major challenge for the system are uh, the, the categories of people we protect. Those of you in Professor Martin's class who look at the convention definition, you know that the <coughs> the convention definition of refugee doesn't protect anybody fleeing conflict or uh, doesn't doesn't extend to people merely fleeing conflict or violence. You need to show a likelihood of persecution on one of the five grounds: race, nationality, religion, membership in a social group, and political opinion. So it's a, it's a narrower group. It's, it's capacious. It includes lots of people, but it doesn't include most of the people that the world considers refugees. Uh, and so we need to think about how broader categories of protection can be developed. Some people think the convention should be reopened. We need a new definition of refugee. I actually think that's a bad idea because if you reopen the convention, it's much more likely in the current time you're going to have more shrinking of protections and rights more than an expansion. But there could be other additional instruments that begin to protect these broader classes of people. And we'll need to do this in any event because of uh, climate change. Uh, and, uh, and natural disasters. So UNHCR, my old agency, hates the phrase climate refugee uh, because they think it waters down the impact of the, the current definition in the convention. But there will be forced migrants because of climate change and natural disaster. In fact, the predictions are there'll be many more people fleeing climate change than there are currently fleeing conflict 10 years uh, down the road. And there'll, be a, there'll need to be a set of interna international instruments that uh, figure out what kinds of rights people have, what kind of modalities should put in place for, to protect people forced from their homes uh, for those reasons. Uh, even within the, I should say, in the US, even within what we normally think of as people fleeing conflict and violence and uh, persecution, um, our law at the moment uh, is not up to the task. And I'm thinking here particularly, again, of the southwest border where you had many unaccompanied minors fleeing gang recruitment in very dangerous countries, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, and Guatemala, some of the highest uh, violence rates in the world in this so-called Northern Triangle uh, countries. <coughs> get to the border, ask for asylum, and our asylum system generally does not recognize claims of people fleeing gang violence. It's deemed, uh, technically, they're not, the, the, the young men are not deemed to be part of a particular social group. It's a non-government that's doing the persecution and the like. So we need to find some ways to protect these people as well, because we can't be a country that returns young men to situations where there's a fairly high likelihood that they will be killed uh, for having resisted joining um, a gang. So we need to push out on the categories of protection here um, uh, around the world. 
Thirdly, again, uh, this is all um, under policy changes um, that need it, and this, I think, is the most important. I think one of the, the things I, after teaching refugee law for many, many years, um, and focusing in on particular asylum-type cases in U.S. courts and narrow questions of doctrine and things, I think one of the biggest lessons for me at UNHCR was that that's not the real problem. Uh, the number of people who get to Western court cases is a very small number of refugees. United States, there are 30, 40,000 uh, asylum uh, applications a year. It's gone up, I guess, a bit more than that in recent recent years. Um, but they're, they're, they're um, close to uh, 20 million refugees around the world. So only a tiny proportion of these get to Western, Western courts. The vast majority of refugees flee across the border and stay in the country that they have fled into, the so-called country of first asylum. And they stay, <coughs> and they stay they stay. None of the major conflicts we see around the world, whether it's Syria, South Sudan, Central African Republic, uh, Northern Nigeria, Mali, um, there are others, I'm trying to think of others for current, Yemen, uh, none of these look like they'll be resolved anytime soon. And these come on top of long-standing refugee <coughs> situations for several million Afghan refugees that fled during the Soviet invasion in the 1970s. Somali refugees who've been fleeing Somalia, more than a million for the last several uh, decades. And the, 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 the understanding of the convention, the system that was supposed to be put in place was that people would flee across the border, they'd be taken care of quickly, and then a solution would be found for their situation. They'd either be able to go home to their families, they'd locally integrate the country they're in, or they would be able to be resettled elsewhere. I think that's what most people think. If you, if you say to people, you know, most refugees stay refugees for more than 15 years, I think most people on the street are amazed by that. I have no idea. But that's, that is the rule. Long-term displacement is the rule. That, that's acceptable if the place they have been received asylum gives them a set of rights, allows them to rebuild their families, allows them ultimately some kind of naturalization in the long run, perhaps, citizenship, um, but that's not what happens. Even though this convention is a guarantor of many rights, it's a wonderful human rights convention, it is widely violated. The right to work, for example, is respected, but is, is, is largely not respected in countries of first asylum. Now, refugees may end up working informally, legally, uh, but very few countries actually grant a right uh, for refugees to work. Well, how can you rebuild your life? How can you take care of your family without the right to work. Again, that can that's a, it's okay for six months or a year. You can be taken care of by NGOs in your national community. But when you talk about refugee camps or refugee situations that go on 15, 20, 30 years, you're talking about people who don't have an ability to rebuild their lives, who are usually excluded from uh, social programs. <coughs> Kids often don't get education beyond the primary level if, they, if they're able to go to the primary level. And I've talked about this in some of the things I've written recently as the, the second exile. The first exile is when you're kicked out of your home and, and forced to flee your home across to, into another country. And the second exile happens when you're in that country of first asylum, but you're not able to be included in the normal social and economic systems um, of that country. And that is the world that we see now. Most refugees live in these situations of second exile. Now, uh, again, contrary to the usual perception, most refugees do not live in camps. There are many large camps around the world, but the majority of refugees do not live in camps. They live in either 
rural settings or in urban situations where, again, they may be able to enter into the workforce in informal ways, often exploited, often marginal, unable to rebuild their lives because this situation goes on and on and on. So the, the, the huge challenge here, the crisis, if you will, in refugee protection is what you do with these long-term situations. How do you change the way the world responds to that? The way the world has tended to respond to that is that it, it's considered a humanitarian crisis 20, 30 years after the event that sent people over the board. It's left of the so-called humanitarian agencies uh, of the UN system. And what really needs to happen, I can say much more about this uh, a bit later, but the way this needs to be restructured is to bring in other parts of the international community, the so-called development agencies, who can come in and assist hosting communities and provide livelihoods opportunities uh, for, uh, for refugees and for hosting uh, communities, but that, that, that uh, alter the situation where refugees end up in their own sort of uh, parallel systems of UN-built schools or clinics or hospitals and try to in integrate them more into the society that has accepted them. It would be very hard to convince hosting societies to do that who worry about the cost of doing that, competition with their local nationals and the like, unless money comes in in a different way and programming is done in a different way. So, and this requires a really a fundamental rethinking of how UNHCR and the development agencies uh, do their work. So to me, that's, again, that's uh, on the, the third part of the, the major policy uh, challenge. Let me uh, quickly get to the last two, and then we can pause for questions. So the next set of uh, challenges, and this follows from what I've just said, is on the institutional, institutional side. <coughs> uh, as I said, the, I mean, the, the, the response to refugee flows is, is remarkably <coughs> ad hoc. Um, we don't have a system in place that says when refugees flow across the borders, member states of the United Nations, members of the Executive Committee of UNHCR, uh, other big donor states, uh, will get together and handle this according to a particular kind of framework. So what happens is people flee across the border. UNHCR is there because UNHCR has offices in 120 countries around the world. The local person, the local UNHCR representative, the head of the officer is called a representative. They're actually accredited to uh, the hosting state, almost like an ambassador. Um, they see people coming across the border. They call UNHCR headquarters and says, send tents, and please contact WFP, World Food Program, and have food sent, and medical care, and talk to Oxfam, and get the, get the usual humanitarian agencies here to help out. And people arrive and emergencies uh, are dealt with as best people can and then UNHCR goes out to the world and says, give us money. But then as I've said, that, that continues. So the next year, more humanitarian relief, the next year, more humanitarian relief, and you end up with the situation of <coughs> refugee dependency for what I've said is the second exile. So the question is, how do you then create an institutional structure that allows much more quickly for a transition to the new kind of programming um, I described. Um, and also that responds to new kinds of uh, forced migration that I mentioned, like climate change and, and the like. Um, I see two, uh, two possibilities here. One would be to expand the authority of the High Commissioner <coughs> for Refugees. Um, now, anytime you say that in the side of the UN, every other UN agency gets nervous because it's seen as a zero-sum game. If the High Commissioner gets more authority, it's coming from somebody. 
right? There's a finite amount of UN authority uh, out there. But I think it might be necessary, and I think it would have to be, first of all, for the new classes of refugees I've described, if, if someone is going to have to worry about norms for people moving because of climate change and natural disasters. Right now, uh, this is handled uh, through what is natural disasters inside a country is handled by a system known as the uh, cluster system, which is loosely organized and coordinated within a particular country. It's not a particularly effective way to do, uh, to do business. I, I can talk, talk more about that in a bit. But it, it's not a model for these large-scale refugee flows, I don't think. So you could talk about how you expand the authority of a single person, the High Commissioner for Refugees, to cover um, natural disasters and climate. And then also, perhaps, give him or her authority to pull in, in a more direct way, uh, these development actors, if the development actors understand the High Commissioner had the authority um, to do that. The, the problem, this is getting somewhat technical and boring, but it's actually, this is where the rubber hits the road on these kinds of institutional, structural arrangements uh, in response. Um, the problem for the United Nations is that the big development actors in the world, these are big donors like USAID or DFID is the, the British Development Agency or the Swiss Development Agency, Swedish Development Agency, or the World Bank and the other development banks around the world. These are not part of the UN. So when the UN tries to organize itself to respond and adopt a new model that would include development work as well as humanitarian work, it doesn't have the horses or the money to do that. It needs to reach out beyond itself to pull these other people into an effective response. And if that's true, then this leads to perhaps my, uh, I think, to this, the second suggestion I would make on structure, which is we probably need to start thinking about a new institutional, global institution for responding to refugee flows uh, and to long-standing refugee situations. Now, again, I can safely say this because I'm now a few thousand miles from Geneva. If I said this in Geneva, I'd probably be called a traitor and thrown off the sixth floor of the UNHCR <laughs> building. Um, but I think this follows from the idea that the current response is not adequate. Um, we can't, I mean, if refugee situations really just lasted six months to a year, fine, we can take care of them through the humanitarian structure. But once we see people in long-term displacement and their situation is not being <coughs> solved and their lives not being rebuilt, then we need, I think, to think about a broader kind of association. <coughs> now, we actually started this at UNHCR. We, we put together something when I was there called the Solutions Alliance. Um, and it was a loose, collaborative meeting of uh, donor states, hosting states, international organizations, NGOs, loosely done at the global level with the idea that we would focus in on particular countries and in those particular countries. Like these were smaller countries and smaller refugee flows, but ones that we thought we could work with on, um, uh, in terms of long-term situations, Zambia, uh, Uganda, the IDP situation, in the internally displaced situation in Colombia, possibly Somalia, which is a large, a large number of people. The idea was that there would be local groups and formed uh, within these countries that could get guidance from this broader, broader group. This has been done informally. It's had some success, but I think probably something like this has to be institutionalized at the global level, which would be this kind of multi-stakeholder institution that could plan globally to really try to resolve these long-term situations. Now, I mean, this, you sort of came here thinking you were going to hear about Europe and both people and people drowning, and I'm talking in a very different, that's the problem here, is we're so, the headlines are so focused on the emergency, but I think we miss what is really 
the, the saddest part of the story here, or equally sad part of the story, which are these long-term situations for which there is no institutional structure or programmatic structure in the current setup to help people out. The, the analogy I often use on this, it's like a, uh, it's like cases of domestic abuse where women are uh, forced to flee their homes because of domestic abuse and, and, and are able to get to a safe house where they're protected, which is dramatic and important. It's like the rule of non refoulement. No one thinks someone should live in a safe house for the next 20 years of their lives. And they should be able to live safely and resume their lives somewhere safely, have the have the abuser picked up and put in jail. But safe house is not a place that kids should be right at. And that's the situation we have for refugees. We have lots of refugees in safe houses. That's the structure we've set up. That's the current institutional structure, is a set of safe houses. It's not enough. We need to move beyond that. The third category, and I guess here I'll, I'll stop talking. Uh, the challenge and the crisis is one of political courage. Um, and this is a tough one. I mean, this is a really inopportune time to be talking about major advancements in refugee relief. We know what's going on around the world. And there are serious issues here. I mean, we're talking two days after the, uh, the bombing in Brussels. Of course, none of the people accused of doing the bombing were refugees, were part of the refugee bombing. Mean, so, we tend to mislabel people, but, but there are, are clear concerns that the uncontrolled movement of people around the world will contribute to terrorism around the world. That's a serious concern. And the, the problem, the concern for refugee countries is they are largely unregulated groups. People arrive with need and are taken in uh, in countries of first asylum without much screening, even Germany. I mean, Germany took a million asylum seekers over the last, actually the numbers, if you look at it now, it's probably 600,000, but it's a very large number of people came in with no screening whatsoever, just showed up in Germany or accepted in Germany. And some people in Germany and the rest of Europe are saying, we don't know who these people are, we don't know what risks, risks they cause. Uh, so there has to be a system that adequately checks for that while we're trying to, to protect. So one, one needs to take. Uh, take uh, the issue of uh, terrorism and violence um, uh, seriously. Then there, there are concerns about, uh, in many countries, about economic burdens. Countries that are not doing well uh, economically um, say, how can we absorb so many people, new people, when we can't even take care of our own citizens? How can we have responsibilities elsewhere? You know, I heard this one time, I was talking to a student from China recently. He said, you know, China's got a lot of problems. And I said, yeah, but Really? I mean, a billion people? We can't take 10,000 refugees and distribute them? Or do you really notice that? So that's some of these claims I, I, I'm less sympathetic to, but there, there, are, um, there are countries where this would be a uh, um, uh, serious concern. And then also issues of demography and ethnic mix and the like. So there, I, I don't think everyone who is concerned about the numbers of refugees coming into the country are people we should condemn as bad immoral people. There are serious issues that has to be, have to be dealt with here. But they have to be answered. Uh, because the right answer is to extend refugee protection. We're talking about otherwise sending people back who are going to be persecuted in their own country. That's why we set up the refugee regime after World War, after World War II. It's not to let that happen again. And it's a crucial human rights uh, and uh, concern and issue, issue of uh, moral principles here, it seems to me. So how do we develop the political courage to 
calmly but strongly push back on what we're seeing um, around the world. I think first we can try to talk about the facts and about evidence, which doesn't seem to work very well, especially in this country. Sometimes. So, um, uh, so firstly, uh, on the facts, um, um, I've, I've talked about the flows. The numbers are really not huge. The United States has said it will take 10,000 Syrian refugees out of 4 million. Um, only 2,000 have come in or so because of these long uh, security uh, checks. Uh, but, but think about other situations. Remind Americans of the fact that after World War II, we took 400,000 people to this place persons act in Europe. More than a million Cubans have come to the United States. Now, that situation's probably changed, I guess, a little bit now, the last few days. But um, after the Vietnamese War um, and the, the fall of Saigon, and uh, something was created was called the Comprehensive Plan um, of Action. And the United States took more than 1.1 million Southeast Asian refugees over a 10-year period. And 10,000 Syrians is too much to take into this country? That's just shameful. And you've got to be willing to say that and call the attention of people of the history here and, and the need to do more of our fair share, as I mentioned before, in terms of uh, responsibility, responsibility sharing. Um, so we can talk about the numbers we've taken in the past. We can also talk about the economic, economic impacts. The, um, I'm involved with some work at the World Bank now. It's beginning to generate data that'll try to figure out what the impact of refugees are in hosting states. And, and the economists that I talk to seem to say, look, this is really like migration. I mean, yes, people are forced across borders, but ultimately, in the long run, the general economic view is migration is good for migrants and it's good for the countries they migrate to in the long run. And there's no reason to think that actually in the end, Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon are not going to be benefited by uh, the Syrian refugees uh, they take in. That's a hard case to make now. When rents have gone up because there are more people and wages have gone down and there are more people using the electric grid and the and waste treatment and the like and things are overwhelmed. But that's that's just a, I mean that's where the development organizations have to come in and provide a lot of money to hosting states. But there's every reason to think that in the long run refugees will be good for a society. And certainly in a country of three hundred and twenty million people taking 30, 40, 50,000 refugees and have them distributed around the United States as they are through our resettlement processes would not have any kind of serious economic on the terrorism side of this, I'm sure you've all seen a lot of uh, a lot of this in, in, in the newspapers. It is true, it is accurate to say that the screening that refugees get to get to the United States uh, on terrorism grounds is more serious than the screening for any other group of immigrants coming into the United States. And it's you know what what used to be. I mean, the fact that it took two years for a refugee to be admitted from overseas was something the refugee advocates would scream about, saying, how can it take so long? Now it's seen as a benefit. Right? We say, oh, it takes two years, are you kidding? <laughs> Look how carefully we screen people, because it takes so long to bring people in. It's still too long. Uh, but, but the kind of screening that's done, as you can read the congressional testimony of the government officials who do this work, but it's not just checking databases, it's checking other kinds of information and cross-checking it. It's really as, as thorough as you're, going, as you're going to get. And the claim of some people in this political season that you have to be 100% sure is just ridiculous. You can't be 100% sure of anything. You have to have a system that gets as good as it gets, but nothing's going to be 100% sure. And the, you know, the, in the, hundred, the one million green cards that are handed out every year by the United States, 
hundreds of thousands go to go to Muslim uh, client applicants. Are we talking about closing that down? Uh, not letting anybody in? Maybe some people are, but it doesn't make sense to me. We need a system that does adequate, good, thorough uh, screening. You need other kinds of sources of intelligence to find people who might cause harm. And then you've got to balance that against the huge humanitarian needs we have here um, that have to be, that at least allow more than 2,000 or 10,000 Syrians to come in to the country. Last point on political courage. I, I, I think the United States has been unfortunately absent uh, on the world stage on this. The U.S. has given huge amounts of money, so the UN, U.S. continues to be the largest contributor to, to UNHCR. Um, but in the earlier days, when I mentioned the CPA, the, the Comprehensive Plan of Action in Vietnam, that was put together by the U.S. and, and UNHCR. The U.S. was a leader on that. And there were particular reasons, because these were Vietnam refugees and the involvement of the United States in the region, obviously, gave the U.S. reason to be there. But similar kinds of arguments can be made in terms of the refugee flows uh, around the world. And, and even if not, the U.S. has a leadership role so, uh, but on the Syrian situation, uh, there has not been that kind of leadership role. You know, there, there, to my mind, should have been an international conference called among donor states. Again, not something to leave simply to the EU and Turkey to work out, but with lots of donor states and resettling states. And a comprehensive plan should have been put together that involved lots more aid to the hosting states, lots more resettlement. Uh, and this system never would have become the so-called crisis in Europe because you would have taken a million refugees out over 10 years out of the Middle East and you would have provided more money there from the start in a comprehensive way. The crisis happened in Europe, I keep putting air quotes here, the crisis happened in Europe when after four years people said, it's intolerable where we are and they just started walking or got on a boat. And that's when Europe discovered there was a crisis. But the crisis, if there had been a crisis in numbers, it had happened three or four years ago. Just no one paid attention to it. And the world should have paid attention to it. And the United States should have paid attention to it and should have taken steps uh, uh, to, uh, to, as I say, to convene these groups. To convene. The kind of leadership the United States has, has generally exhibited on refugee issues. And it just um, has not been uh, in evidence. Time. So, I think if you get together political courage, new institutional arrangements, and some changes in policy, these so-called numbers crises don't end up crises at all. They become manageable ways to deal with people fleeing terrible situations that we all committed ourselves to in uh, 1951 or a few years after when we ratified the Refugee Convention. Can we stop there? Thank you very much. So we've got about uh, 20 minutes uh, for questions. Please, uh, please refer. I'll just leave it to you to call it whatever you like. humanitarian UN organizations and NGOs <coughs> that get together in time of crisis and kind of divide up 
the moment it was don't do this. I was in the Middle East and I kept saying to the development, you know, to dip it, I mean, talk to USA, and it's not some communication, but it's not as if the development agencies come up with a plan saying Lebanon needs the following to be able to respond. We'll do this, you do that, put it. Now, a little bit happened in London in January. There was a pledging conference of $10 billion for the Syria situation, by, largely by development agencies over the next four or five years. We'll see if the money comes in and if it gets distributed. But again, these were individual pledges by individual agencies. There was no comprehensive plan. So the first thing you need is a plan. And the plan in a hosting state ought to be, one, to help out the infrastructure that's needed. So if, you, if the water and the electricity are now overwhelmed, then you need to build out those, that kind of infrastructure. Uh, and then secondly, you need to think about economic opportunities for refugees and hosting communities. Now, they do have some plans in Jordan for this that they're going to create, that announced, in slow progress, but they've announced sort of a special economic zone where uh, investment will be made uh, and employers will be committed to hiring both Jordanian and refugee workers. And the British have said that they will give tariff uh, reductions for goods produced there. That's kind of a neat plan, right? I mean, it gets people working. So that's something also development agencies could work on, is how you build a private, um, how you build uh, economic opportunities beyond the infrastructure relief that's needed. Development agencies also provide simply budget relief in the home country. So, I mean, in the, in the hosting country. So, Hosting countries have spent a lot more through it because they had to hire a lot of people to do the work that they'll, they'll help take care of some of those salaries and the like. But there should be, when the time comes, um, work in the countries of origin for return. So the Somalia, this, something declared a new deal for Somalia a few years ago was based on this kind of development agencies would help build opportunities that would allow for sustainable return. So when people go back to Somalia, if it's safe to go back, they have jobs to go to their schools, their roads, and the like. So that is also a thing to be done. Um, and that's, again, been gestured at, but there's no, there's no comprehensive planning among the development agencies for that. That's, for that now, then when you get to the resettlement countries, I don't think this worked for development agencies, but I think there's other work that can be done. So now there are a range of different um, platforms that are being put together largely by the private sector. LinkedIn is sponsoring one, I think, in Sweden, where refugees will be able to list their skills. Refugees in Lebanon can put their skills up, and employers in Sweden can say, I'll take that, and we'll match people. And so technology is making a lot of this uh, more doable. That could be supported publicly, but ultimately it would be a, a private sector initiative. So there are lots of ways to do it, but it needs it needs comprehensive And what we have now is just sort of independent. Well, we'll give some money here. The King of Jordan wants money, and we better give some more money to Turkey because we don't want people coming, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there's not a, we need to move to that next step, which goes, because we're still locked in this idea of humanit emergency humanitarian aid. The, the thinking is happening. I mean, it just hasn't, hasn't gotten there yet. Speak a little more about the climate change refugee situation. No, don't say climate change refugee. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, mostly people driven from their homes because of climate change seem to stay locally. They seem to be internally displaced. The question is what, now, you're going to have some seeking islands and people in Bangladesh. And, um, where people probably go across. So the first question I ask is, are you dealing with an internally displaced population or 
a population that flows across borders because refugee law only applies when people flee across, across uh, international borders. I don't have a lot to say on this in the sense that the, the numbers are probably going to be very large of movement, whether over borders or not. We don't have an international regime to deal with it. There's been some work done under something called the Manson Initiative, which was a initiative, is an initiative sponsored by the, the Nord Norwegians, the Swedes, the Swiss, and a couple of other countries to think about what guidelines might look like. And there is something, while there's a very strong convention on refugees, um, well, well known, there are also a set of what are called guidelines for internally displaced people that were adopted by the General Assembly a number of years ago, and some states have brought them now into their uh, into their um, into their domestic law. And you may move towards some set of guidelines for people forced from their homes because of the climate. But but the, the legal structure doesn't exist. It's great work for any of you guys that now graduate and want to do something. This will be the coming field in forced migration is figuring out what should happen. And climate change is tough because I mean, some will be dramatic. The natural disasters will be dramatic, but generally people go back after typhoons or earthquakes and the like. But it's the long, this so-called slow onset climate change where the desert just grows a little bit more each year and the crops don't grow or whatever that, that lead to people slowly. Lead, that needs to be figured out. What, how do we help people in those situations? It's been around a long time. Some people really attribute the the Darfur conflict, basically climate change, that you had uh, lands that, because of drought and change, uh, the desert grew. The pastoralists who were used to having their herds in one place suddenly came to where the farmers were, and that then fed into ethnic and religious differences that led to fight. But some people see climate as one of the contributing factors to that. So climate can create conflict, it can create refugees, but it also can, or people can move because of four other reasons. So that, but it's, it needs to be thought through much more than, than it is now. Some initiatives, but it needs to get traction. Oh, it sounds like a lot of the reforms you talked about, correct me if I'm wrong, but at least the institutional reforms involve sort of legislative action and, and general consensus in the mm -hmm. country. And as you know, I mean, that's not easy to get these days. I'm wondering if we can rethink the refugee problem more from like a foreign policy standpoint. So, um, at least in countries like Syria and Iraq, um, where the U.S. has had direct involvement recently, whether the, the part of the calculus about how to deal with countries on a foreign policy basis is seeing the refugee um, crisis happening 10 or 15 years down the road. And is that something that can be incorporated into U.S. foreign policy that only relies on sort of executive action? Um, that would be easier to implement some of the long-term plans that you see. Well, what would that mean? So you're about to invade Iraq, and you think this might cause refugees there for what? Well, it, it goes into the, the cost-benefit analysis of how to... Oh, I see. So to prevent the creation of refugees altogether, mm -hmm. you're not to respond. Um, yeah. It's an interesting point. I mean, it's because... It's not, I mean, refugees are seen kind of as something that might happen, but I don't, it's not taken seriously into account in most foreign policy decisions. I think that's right to say. So whether it would be a strong enough weight to prevent the action up front, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, 
Now, some people said that the humanitarian system itself is part of the problem because the fact that people can be taken care of. You can sort of invade or there can be a conflict knowing that the rest of the world will bear the burden through the humanitarian system. So people, uh, uh, High Commissioner Guterres, uh, High Commissioner when I was in UNHCR said, you know, it talked about South Sudan this way, that these, these two men, Rick Mashar and, and Salva Kiir in South Sudan, so had this personal fight that became an ethnic fight that led to millions of people fleeing with no, with absolute, with absolute impunity. No reckoning for the costs they've imposed on people or on neighboring states, nothing. And in part, because the international community was there to kind of pick up the pieces and take care of people, it allowed them to, sound like an economist here, to, to, to externalize the costs, right? Now, how do you internalize the externalities <coughs> in decision making? Hmm, I don't know. It's an interesting idea, but I don't, I, I mean, how much you would have to change the foreign policy? Is it harder to change the UN humanitarian system or the U.S. foreign policy regime? <laughs> I don't know. And I get my guess is, if I think about the U.S. adventures in recent years, euphemism. Um, <laughs> I think they thought that there weren't going to be any refugees after Iraq, right? I mean, the Iraqis were going to welcome the Americans with open arms and institute democracy, and people would come home. Not free. So, good luck on that. <laughs> but the, I mean, what you're you're saying something you know, more broadly is, is um, and you'll see this now in all the UN documents is attention to root causes. You know, much better to prevent flows of people or not have them happen uh, through prevention. Uh, and this was one that. Um, uh, we haven't done a lot. And the UN in particular is really not. I don't mean the UN, just the bureaucrats, but the Security Council and the, the whole UN structure has really not done well. The uh, UN was established after World War II to stop war and to guarantee peace and security. And if you look at the current conflicts around the world, it has not, it has not, it has not done it. it hasn't done it. And so, how do you now get prevention and preparedness and root cause work into that? And that's that's beyond my brief here on, on this stuff. But again, that, that seems to be really, it requires change in the security count. I mean, that's really tough stuff to work on. But it would be better to prevent. Yeah, I don't have much, you can tell I'm stalling. I don't have much of an answer on this. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, we need to like <coughs> think of a new global institution to deal with refugees. Maybe, yeah. It, that sounded like potentially like as an alternate to expanding the authority of the High Commissioner. Yeah. Again. So like how would, what would that look like, a new global institution? <coughs> Wouldn't that just create some of the same problems you have with the UN okay, right now? Well, now I've figured outside the UN. Oh boy, now I'm really getting in trouble. Um, <laughs> no, I think there, I mean, I think it's time to be creative about this. So I think you, I mean, I, I, this is, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about over the next couple of years. So I don't have any, I'll be back to you in a few years on this. But it's something I really want to pay attention to. But uh, my initial thinking, and this comes from the work we did through this group, the Solutions Alliance, is that you can get, you can form partnerships among states, multilateral organizations, NGOs, um, hosting states and donor states, to, to work on this in a, in a way that there's some examples. I don't know enough about Gavi, which is the Global Alliance on Vaccines, but that was a private-public partnership to 
make vaccines available around the world. Um, the Global Fund uh, for Malaria and, and HIV AIDS. I mean, there are, there are examples now, creative examples on how to pull together a range of groups rather than what happens at the UN is you create a new organization over a particular problem that can't be solved by defining it as a particular problem, and then you want to deter federal flight. So you probably need to, if I'm thinking about it, it's probably an organization loosely allied with the UN, but made up of a range of stakeholders that has a certain kind of funding structure, and that can pull in all the necessary people to comprehensively plan for relief and solutions, which would have to go beyond the humanitarian community to this broader community. And the problem is for refugees, um, it started as a humanitarian situation and it's continued that way even though because it's long-term displacement, it's no longer simply humanitarian. I think that can be done. I think with creativity and will, you can create new institutions that work. I think people think the Global Fund and Gavi have been really quite successful and they're, I think, something like this new model I'm thinking about, but I need to learn more about how they're actually functioning. What about the EU-Turkey deal last week? What about the EU-Turkey deal last week? Um, it seems to, it has a contradiction at the heart of it that makes it hard to think it can work. Um, it says two things. It says everybody should go back. Uh, everyone who comes from Turkey to Greece or to the EU should immediately be returned, but they have to be returned consistent with uh, European and international <coughs> law. And European and international law, both under the jurisprudence of the European Court for Human Rights and under the EU directives enforced by the by the Europe by the EU High Court, um, Court of Justice, um, seem to say pretty clearly you can't have mass returns. You need to have some kind of a hearing, individualized determination, not necessarily on the merits of the asylum claim, but whether it's countries uh, Turkey's a country of safe return. Does Turkey respect their rights as to this alien? Uh, this particular asylum seeker um, of um, should they live up the obligations of the convention. Now, a lot of people think that's going to be tough to show because Turkey has joined the refugee convention, but but joined it the way it was originally written, which had a geographical limitation that only applied to refugees in Europe. And then the 1967 protocol came and said you could expand that, but Turkey hasn't ratified that. So technically, Turkey only follows the convention as the European refugees, so it wouldn't apply. Then people say, but yeah, but Turkey has adopted procedures that essentially are like that. And there's a fight going on among the legal academics. Your old friend Kay Haubroner is on, the, of course, the wrong side of this fight, but uh, uh, thinking that it's okay. If it looks enough like the, like, like the convention, then it should qualify. But this will get worked out through the courts. And I think, quite frankly, given um, given the conditions that people are being kept in and pushed back in. I, I have a, I, some litigants somewhere will find a court, either a European human rights court or the Euro, an EU court that will say this can't go forward like this. And already you've seen, after two days of this, um, UNHCR pulled out, IRC pulled out, Médecins Sans Frères pulled out of Lesbos and said we're not going to stay there and work on this because what's supposed to be a system for screening has turned into a detention and return place. So, it's very hard to see how you can accomplish the result of folks return and individual. Both of which are on paper, okay, so when the, when the paper came out, UNHCR said, yeah, on paper, we, we gotta say it's okay, because they say they're gonna comply with international law and EU law, but it's very hard to see how you do that and accomplish the idea of direct and immediate return. So, I think it's doomed. 
And besides, people will find other ways to come in. It's just going to raise the cost of um, smuggling and trafficking. Through land borders of Bulgaria, um, through over the ocean again, whatever. And foreign money is Turkey They've spent much more now in refugee camps and the like, so it's not. And the promise that they'll consider Turkey, no one believes that Turkey's being seriously. Uh, Turkey doesn't want to be considered for EU membership, and the EU members don't want Turkey there. So the idea that this is going to lead to EU membership doesn't make any sense. I think they, they're, there are 25 chapters in the EU treaty that need to be negotiated. They've started negotiations 20 years ago on 13 of them. And this adds one more that they'll look up. So it's years away from the membership. No, I don't think anybody takes that seriously. I think the serious part of it, which is not really disclosed in the agreement, is although this number seems to have been chopped down again, is the the let me say this way. What should be happening here is there should be a massive resettlement program out of Turkey. And it should come to the United States, it should come to Australia, it should come to Canada, it should come to Europe, and it should be three, four, five hundred thousand there over the next couple of years. Uh, and that would keep a lot of people home because these are dangerous, expensive trips to go to go to Greece to uncertain situations. And people would wait for a, chan a reasonable chance, I think, to be uh, to be resettled elsewhere. But then you have to have, the European system also has to have a way of bringing people in, adjudicating their cases fairly and quickly, um, and sending them back for, for cases that don't qualify. The problem here is that most of the people coming, the Syrians and the Afghans, and Eritreans and Iraqis, they're, they're granted at 80% 80, 80 plus in terms of having legitimate asylum claims. So, so what is Europe saying here in terms of this massively expensive, dramatic return of people that qualify for refugee status? And why is it all on Turkey's shoulders? So um, I, uh, it doesn't look practically like it can work out. It doesn't mean, I mean, there's something to be said for it. I mean, I mean, the case to be made for is people are taking very dangerous trips and spending a lot of money with traffickers and smugglers. And if you do the math, if you've got 60,000 arrivals a month and $1,000 a trip, I think that comes out to $60 million a month for smugglers. It's a huge business for organized crime and for people to get involved in. So there's a huge incentive uh, for people uh, to do that, and you don't, I mean, that's not a good thing. It's much better to have an, or, or here I'm taking language from the, uh, the, the Vietnamese Comprehensive Plan of Action, you'd like an orderly departure program from Turkey if you can get it, but you can't do it by just forcing everybody back willy-nilly consistently with, as I understand the law, in the EU. Does that help? Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to have to call it quits at that point. Thank you very much, Alex, for Thank you all very much, and we hope you'll come to the main ground for part of the April agenda. Yeah.